it's already been said even in, in Ebony's call to worship, but every time I'm up here, there's really, or any of us are up here, there's really just one goal in mind, is that we would all know Jesus and that we would all fall in love with him, right? Fall in love with him again. And to know him is to love him, like to, to see different sides of him. And the Holy Spirit is so good at revealing who Jesus is. And every time we see him, we see a new side of him, we get to see his heart and to know him is to love him. And so today that's the whole point is that we would see him get another glimpse of who Jesus is and that we would fall more in love with who he is. And if you don't know him very well, well then that today would just be another step into knowing who this Jesus is that we're talking about. Um, and so I'm just gonna ask that you incline your ears, not even just to the words I'm saying, but to what you feel the spirit is saying to us together. Um, in this room, because we're a body, and he sees us individually, but he also sees us as one body, as one bride, and I think that um, there's an emphasis on this today, that he wants to speak to us together as a body, that we would hear from him together, and that we would journey with him together, and so have your ear open, and we're going to pray, but have your ear open, and yield your heart to what the Spirit wants to say to us together, and and even ask the Lord, like, these words from the scriptures, like, what are you trying to highlight? Like, locate the place that Christ wants to reveal himself to us. Um, so together, we're going to delve into the word. Um, last time I spoke, I gave a message based on Revelation 14 and 15, which is, you know, Revelations is, is an extremely obscure book in the Bible. Um, I'm going to dip into that a little bit again. And last time I spoke about it, it was about being the kind of worshipers that God desires and taking, taking ownership of our time and place in history as a church right now, as worshipers, as a church. And so I'm going to revisit that today and also just bring it into continuation with what we've been speaking about for the past seven or eight weeks together as a church, as, as Pastor Ryan has been leading us into what it is to know Christ, knowing Christ being the prize. Um, and there's so much to be revealed about Jesus in Revelation. Um, and in 14 and 15, like personally for me, I feel like God gave it to me and it's become like a personal mandate and it's become something that's really influenced our worship team and our worship culture together. And so I want to dip into that again um, and kind of give a recap, but also like give more of what I feel God wants to say through that passage. And um, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, Jesus will reveal himself today as, as we gather because he loves to be known. Like Jesus... Um, Jesus loves to be known. More than we want to know him, Jesus wants to be known. Like he longs to be longed for. And so we can expect today that um, Jesus is going to show up and he's going to give a new side of who he is. So um, why don't we pray together? Let's just posture our hearts. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're in this room. And we just want to be present with you here and now, in this moment, this morning. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're so good at revealing Jesus to us. You're just so good at showing us new sides of who Jesus is. So good at showing us the expression on his face. So good at showing us his heart towards us, his compassion, his kindness. So good at revealing his teachings in new ways as we read the scriptures. So today we just ask that you do that again and reveal Jesus. Our hearts are longing to know him. Our hearts are longing to know you, Jesus. Just in your own way in this moment, just say that to him, that you want to know him more, that you want to hear from him. Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us eyes to see you, Jesus? Would you do something new in us today that shapes us into the, into the church, into the bride that you desire? We want to be everything that you want us to be. We just breathe in your presence, Jesus knowing that you're here with us in this room. In your name, amen. Awesome. Amazing, okay. 
So we're just going to dive right in. As I said last time, I spoke on Revelations 14 and 15, and it's a pretty obscure passage, but I'm going to try to break it down. And even for me, like it took a while, and it took reading a few books about Revelation to really understand what's happening in the book. But ultimately, the writer of the book is John, and he is in an island in Patmos, banished, exiled, and God gives him this revelation of Jesus this revelation of a lamb sitting on the throne. And in this passage, we see a picture, Revelation 14 and 15, we see a picture of what worship in heaven will be like. And many of us are probably familiar with uh, Revelation 4, and it's one of the key passages um, for us as a church, where the creatures and elders in heaven are all before the throne worshiping Jesus. And it's a key verse for a church. It says that day and night they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, right? You guys know this verse? It's a picture of worship in heaven. And in Revelations 4.10, sorry, not Revelations plural, it's Revelation singular. In Revelation 4.10, it says, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And so in this verse, it's, a, it's just a pure and powerful picture of what worship looks like in heaven. And I believe that it's a model for us of, of how we can worship Jesus, and it shows us the type of worship that God wants. And it's actually really important that we know the type of worship that God wants. It's really important that we actually know what worship is. Um because our lives depend on it, literally. Like, we were created to worship. And if God's the creator, and he's the designer, and he, he shows us the way of life, then part of that is to, to worship him. And for us to know how to worship him, quite literally, in a spiritual way, our lives depend on it. Even if we don't worship, and okay, maybe we'll go on to live another day, we'll breathe another breath, but like at the very core of who we are, we were created to worship. And eternity hangs on the balance of our worship. Our, our, our life after this life on earth depends on our, our devotion and our belonging and our worship to Jesus. And so it's really important for us to know what worship is and to know the type of worship that pleases God and to know what true worship is. And in the purest sense, worship is not what we want to offer God, it's not simply singing about our feelings or um, even just like saying whatever we want to God, the whatever way we want it. Um, in its purest form, we need to seek out the word of God and the heart of God to know what pleases him because it's him that we worship. This sounds so obvious, but worship is not for us. It's for him. And sometimes stating the obvious is really important because we forget about it, and we think we know it, but we need to be reminded that worship is not for us. Worship is for him. And so I want to know what pleases his heart. I want to ask him. I want to search the word and understand like the type of worship, the type of life that he wants me to live for him. And it's not just whatever I can imagine, whatever whim, although like creativity is involved in our worship, like imagination is involved in our worship, like there's different ways to express how much we love him, but there's in the bottom of it, at the purest way, like we have to seek out what God truly desires from our lives because our worship is for him, it's not for us. And as we grow in maturity, I think we grow in reverence to want to seek that out. Um, and it sounds really obvious, it's really rudimental and simple, but it's really important that we think about it. And we realize the times, you know, when we, when we think about it, we realize the times how much more we actually made it more about us and it wasn't really central around him. So that's Revelation 4. It gives us a picture of worship. But in Revelations 14 and 15, we see another picture of worship. And it's another passage that is full of insight into what true worship is. And I believe that in some ways, more than Revelations 4, it's what the church needs to model its worship after. And so let's read the passage together, and you'll see why I say that in a minute. So Revelation 14. It says, Then I looked... And there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. 
So let's stop there, 144,000. If you're confused about that number, 144,000 represents all of God's redeemed people. So if you take 12, it's a little math lesson. I'm going to give a lot of lessons today, just so you know. So this is our first math lesson. So if you take 12, 12 times 12 times 1,000, you get 144,000. So the first 12 represents the tribes of Israel. The second 12 represents the disciples of Jesus. Times 1,000, which is just like a lot and completeness, you get all of God's redeemed people. So that's what 144,000 represents when it says that in the passage. Standing on Mount Zion with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. And, and hear this. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. So just make a little mental note of that because we're going to come back to it. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Did you hear that? That no one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed for the earth. Not even the angels or the living creatures or the elders in Revelations 4 can learn this song. No one can learn this song except for God's redeemed. Right? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord have an expression of worship. No one can learn the song except for God's redeemed. No one can learn the song except the church. No one can learn the song except for the bride of Christ. No one can learn the song except for you and me and us together and the Church of Vancouver in 2022. And we also learn it from the generations that have gone before us, all of God's redeemed, the mothers and fathers of the faith, the saints, Abraham, whose faith pleased the Lord, David, who was a man after God's own heart, Moses, who led the Israelites out of Egypt into freedom, Joshua, who led God's people into the promised land. We learn it from Mary, who anointed Jesus' feet, from John the Beloved, who leaned on Jesus' chest and wrote Revelation. No one can learn this song also except for the generations who will come after us, because they're also, they will, they are, and they will be God's redeemed, who will come after us as we, as we leverage our lives to teach them the worthiness of Jesus. Like if you're a parent in this place, I'm not even a parent, but I think about the kids in our church all the time, and that this would be a place, like the song we sang, this is a house of worship. This is a place of praise. And that, you know, on rehearsals on Thursdays as a worship team, we're not just here preparing on a Sunday. We actually think about, like every time we gather, we're there to build an altar that generations can come to and learn the worthiness of Jesus and who he is. No one can learn this song except for the 144,000, all of God's redeemed, which is us. And that's why I said, I feel like in, this is just my own opinion, in some ways, it's even a, a greater model for us as a church of worship to learn and understand more than Revelations 4. Because like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I love singing that song. And we need to sing that song. We need to sing what heaven is singing. But I feel like the angels have that covered. I feel like Revelations 14 and 15, God is showing us something that only we can step into as a church. And in that picture, it says that um, they were before the throne. Actually, it's in, it's in Revelation 15, I believe. We'll get to that later. Okay, no, it's Revelation 14, it's here. It says, they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. Like, they were in heaven before the creatures and before the elders singing the song. Like, I get this, like wild imagination thing where it feels like on that day all of God's redeemed people will be singing this song to teach that side of heaven this song that they couldn't have learned without what we bring as humanity as the church and in revelations it continue I keep saying plural revelation it continues to describe more of who these people are and who we're called to be so Revelation 14 continues, and it says, These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Like, this is a vision of worship for us as a church, and this is the vision that we're pursuing. And there's a truth mystery here that is for us to discover 
Um, and again, again, I, I just feel like Revelation 4 is such a good model for us. I feel like we have something to add on to that and something that God is inviting us to discover in this message in Revelation 14. So does this capture your imagination, guys? Not if you, not if it is. Does this lead you to want to discover deeper and truer worship of worshiping Jesus? And so maybe for some of us, like this language is really obscure and poetic and all of Revelation is really like this. And it takes some time to mine through the symbolism and the meaning of it all. But there's something about metaphor and poetry that speak more deeply about truth than if we were just to plainly say something. Like to have an image like helps us imagine and it helps us like understand something in a way that if we just said A, B, C, X, Y, Z really plainly, like we wouldn't un- like feel the fullness of that truth. And so there's like an ethos, an essence, a mystery for us to know not just with our heads, but to like truly embody and to live in and to live through and to live out. And as much as I believe that, you know, it it talks about music in this passage, that there's a huge musical component to this and God loves musical worship, but worship is not music. And so as we're talking through this, we don't need to get super caught up in like, oh, is there a specific song? Like, what's the melody and what are the chords and like, what is the lyric? Um, it, in John, it says that Jesus is, Jesus says that the Father is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And he doesn't say that he is looking for worship. It says he's looking for worshipers. And I feel like that's, again, stating it plainly, but it's a really important distinction Because if we are worshipers, then worship will flow out of us. Like, we don't have to get so caught up in, like, what are the, what's the melody and lyric thing, right? Like, if we're worshipers, worship will flow out of us. God wants our soul, and he wants to shape our identity more than he's like, oh, I want worship, I want worship, I want worship. Like, he wants worshipers. And so that's where we're going to focus. Like, if we can be the people that God called us to be, then an expression will flow accordingly and naturally, out of our lives. And it's not just music. It's the way, the expression of our lives. It's the way that we live it out. And so in this passage, like God, God says, he did, like there's so much description about who these people are that sing this song. Like that um, they're, they had the father's name written on their foreheads and they had Jesus' name written on their foreheads. Like they were identified by him. They belonged to him. Um, it says that they did not defile themselves. They remained pure, that they were a pure bride. It, this is describing the type of worshiper that God desires and the type of worshiper that sings this song. It says that they follow the lamb wherever he goes. They're completely loyal. They, they're completely obedient. Wherever he goes, I'm gonna go. I, I, I love the songs that we sang today, like in Christ alone, like no, there's no fear in death. We're just going to go wherever he goes because that's the power of Christ. Like that is unnatural. That's literally supernatural for us to like walk through death and have no fear because crazy enough, God created us, our bodies and our systems to fear, to protect ourselves. When something's dangerous, we got to stay away because that's not good for us. But there's a way in Christ that supersedes even the way we created, that it's supernatural and that we can walk through fear and we can walk through death and find Christ in the midst of everything. And that is life. It says they were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits from God. Again, a description of these people. They were purchased, that they were redeemed. And these people know the cost of the redemption and that's why they're singing and that's why we sing. I want us to go back to verse 2, the one that we took a mental note of. Revelation 14, verse 2. It says that John heard what was like that of harpists playing the harp. Harpists playing the harp. Not just I heard the sound of the harp, but he heard the sound of harpists playing the harp. It's similar to to John when when he says the Father is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Harpists play the harp. Guys, harpists play the harp. (laughs) Wow, that's groundbreaking. Harpists play the harp. 
But when I read this, I was like, oh, yeah, it's so simple. Harpists play the harp. It flows from their soul and from the, and the identity of the redeemed. Again, I'm, I'm like stating the obvious, but I think it clarifies his thought. Like he didn't hear the harpist playing the trumpet. He didn't hear the sound of harpists playing the piano or like playing synths or playing sick hip-hop beats, you know? Like he heard the sound of harpists playing the harp. And do you guys get where I'm going or should I explain it more? Like if the expression of the harpist is a harp, and we are the harpers, so to speak, then it leads us to ask, what's the natural expression and what's the obvious expression of the church? Like, what are the things that, like, because the harpist harp thing is, like, it's a metaphor for us as a church, as people, as Ebony and Lindsay and Hans. Like, like there's an expression that comes from our life. Like, Ebony's going to be Ebony. The church is going to be the church. So what does the church do? What is the expression of the church? And I think that we ha- like God's leading us to like this place of simplicity where it's like, oh yeah, duh, that's what we do together as a church. And it's really important that we get this. And again, Revelation 14 shows us a little bit about this, of what the expression of the church is. It's an expression of devotion, of loyalty, of identification and belonging to Christ. It's the sound of the people who are disciples of Jesus. It's the sound of a redeemed people and a people who know what it costs to be redeemed. And so what is the sound of a free people? What is the life expression of those who have been redeemed? It's, it's really so simple. Like harpists play the harp. <laughs> it sounds so dumb, <laughs> but there's a revelation here. I believe we need to return to this simplicity. And it also says that these people follow the lamb wherever he goes. And this kind of leads to discipleship, right? Like the disciples follow Jesus wherever he went. A people who follow the way and teaching of Jesus. People who are committed to being with him, becoming like him, doing as he did, and doing it together. A people that know him and love him. And Jesus said, those who love me will follow my commands. And if we're not following the ways of Jesus, then the sound of pure worship will not come out of our lives. Because harpists play the harp. And disciples follow the ways of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. And so what's the expression of the church? It's not just music, but, it's, but how are we actually meant to express our lives? How are we meant to live? How are we meant to spend our time? How are we meant to spend our weekends and our weekdays and use our finances? And how do we interact with strangers and friends and enemies and the least of these and our family? Like all of these questions, like what's our expression? All of this matters. And our engagement with these questions will, I believe, radically change the way we live and our lifestyle. Like when we really like ask these questions and seek out the word of God and and ask him in prayer, like, what do you desire? How do you desire for us to live? It will actually radically change our lives. The fact that we come to church on Sunday morning every, every week, that's a lifestyle. That's a commitment. And the fact that we are taking a portion of our finances and we're saying, no, this belongs to God and this belongs to the church, that's a radical shift It's very different to the world. And as we approach these questions, it causes us to completely reshape our lives. And as we reshape our lives, it completely reshapes our identity and it forms us into the people that God wants us to be. And so I just want to talk a little bit about following the ways of Jesus. (laughs) And so when when I say this, there are like obvious areas that come to mind, right? It's like, you know, the things, if you grew up in a Christian home, it's like the things that you did that you're forced to do, go to Sunday school, means going to church on a Sunday, being part of a local church and giving to it. Um, Jesus calls us to love our enemies, to forgive those who sin against us. It's cultivating a life of prayer, like, like we're doing together as a church. Like Jesus said, my house will be a house of prayer. Well, then we're going to be a house of prayer. 
no questions asked. It's as simple as that. Like this is the expression of the church. It's, it's committing to breaking bread together and sharing in the Lord's Supper. It's reading and studying the word of God. It's honoring leadership. It's confessing our sins in a community that we can trust. It's raising children to know the Lord. It's guarding our hearts and it's watching where our mind wanders. Um, James says that it's loving the orphans and the widow. That's true religion. It's sharing the gospel with our neighbors. Literally, like the list goes on, and you, we could do a whole thing right now. You could shout out all the things, but we're not going to do that. The list goes on. But my, like my point, I'm not here to give like an exhaustive list. Like those are just examples. Those are the thing, the obvious things that come to to mind. Like there would actually be a lifetime's worth of teaching of like all these different topics. But my point is to challenge us to seek out and follow his ways. And in a way that is just like simple. And by simple, I don't mean immature. Like it's a mature simplicity. And, and in a way that's like no questions asked, no hesitations. Because the harpists play the harp. It's just that simple. Um, and even in saying that, like questions are good. I'm, I'm, I'm that guy who's like, ooh, yeah, let's ask the questions and like, let's figure out the mystery thing of it. But like, there comes a time when like, we actually need to keep it simple. And we don't ask the questions for the sake of tearing it down. We ask the questions for the sake of like, God, I actually really, 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 really want to know what, why this is important to you. And we have to be uncom- uncompromising and devoted to this. In Hebrews 10... It says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. So let's hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Let's not give up meeting together. Like, let's, if we're waking up in the morning on a Sunday, and I'm like, oh, I'm feeling really tired. I was, you know, like out late the night before. Let's just not question whether we're going to go to church or not. You know, like, and that's not to say that you don't spend time with your family and, and go on vacation or whatever it is. I'm not trying to be religious, but like hopefully you hear my heart in this, that like let's just, let's just know how important this is to God and how important it is therefore to us together. And even if it doesn't come naturally for you, like even in worship, you're not necessarily a singer. You're like, you know what? I know that God loves singing, so I'm just going to offer my super off-tune voice and I'm just going to sing really loud. Or like maybe you don't love big crowds of people, so like you just come in lane and you sneak in. But like, oh no, actually like Jesus says that where two or more are gathered, like there he is in the midst. And Jesus was with the crowds too, so like I'm going to be there and I'm going to be on time. <laughs> Or like maybe um, Wednesday night, another, I don't know, I'm just like whatever example is off the top of my head, but like Wednesday night, uh, house church or something, and um, it's really hard for you to like get off after work to do it. Or like it's just really hard because you have like a lot of kids and you have to do the whole dinner thing, and I don't understand that part, but I hear it's really hard. And it's just like, it's, you know, you have dinner and bedtimes and stuff. But you're like, okay, it's, it's really hard, but I'm just going to try my best to, like, to do it. And it is going to be a lifestyle change. And that's part of the whole point, is that it, like, it, it, it requires the effort. Um, but let's just, like, the harp is play the harp. The church is going to be the church. The disciples will follow the ways of Jesus. Like, that's what I'm committing to. That's what we're committing to together. And we can ask the questions together along the way, but it's so that we can know the heart of God better, not to like make excuses and to drift off. But again, like this could easily become super religious and it can easily become law and religion. But I want us to approach this in a way where it's like wanting to know someone you love so dearly. And you're like, it's like, oh, like John and Mary, like tell me more about more about Jesus, like I'm going to read the word and study it and commit to this so that I can like see more of who Jesus is. And it's like, oh, like you're reading this book? 
I want to know what you're thinking about. I want to know what you're like entertained about. Like I want to know what's sparking your imagination in this in this book. And so you end up reading the book even though you're not a reader necessarily. You know, or it's like, oh, you you like that song? Like let me listen to it so I can understand what about that song it is that you love. Like it's not just about doing the things. It's about that as we do the things, like we we get to know Jesus. We get to know Jesus, and that's the prize, right? We've been talking about that for eight weeks together as a church. Like, the prize is to know Jesus, and, like, this is a way in which we can know him. It's not just for the sake of doing the task and to, checking, to check off the box, but it's, like, to show up and to discover, oh, Jesus, what is it about this that you love? What is it about this that will be the best for my life? And, like, I want to know you. I want to know what you love. I want to understand why prayer is so important to you. I want to, I want to hear the prayers that you're interceding at the right hand of the Father. Like, I want to discover all this stuff about you because I love you and not just from a place of religion. And it's when we walk with Jesus daily and take up our cross to follow him and love him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and abide in him and keep his commandments and seek out his wisdom that he reveals something about himself and we find out things about him that we couldn't have found anywhere else. And it's not just like a mental knowing. It's not just an intellectual thing, although that's part of it. But it's just like it's a knowing knowing. Like it's a soul knowing. And it's the way that like a bride knows its groom. And that's what Jesus is calling us into. There are so many dimensions to his glory that are reserved for those who will be a friend of Jesus. In John 15, Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I call you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. Like it's only for those who will follow him who will follow the lamb wherever he goes and walk daily with him in the very nitty-gritty of life and in the highs and lows. It's only reserved for those people, his disciples, that he will reveal a dimension of his glory that we won't find anywhere else. It's when we are his friends that he reveals the secrets of the Father to us. So basically, that's all I had originally planned to share. But as I was preparing for this message, I feel like God gave me a lot more. And so... What better way to know what it is to be a disciple than to read the Gospels? And in each Gospel, um, the writer has their own angle and perspective and, and, and thing that they're trying to get across to the reader. And each writer has their own purpose in writing, aside to Jesus, that they're trying to share. And the writer of Matthew, which is what we're going to go through, the writer of Matthew is showing its readers in this book that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah and that he's the fulfillment of the law and all the prophets. So throughout this whole book, like that's the perspective that Matthew is writing in. And that's why throughout the book, Matthew stops at like many points of the story, of, of different parts of the story. He makes a point in saying like this fulfilled what God said through the prophets. Like if you read Matthew, like he'll stop at the end of a story or like at the end of Jesus' teaching and he will say like, this fulfilled what God said through the prophets when Jesus did this. And he'll like quote the thing in Isaiah or, or whatever it might be. That's the angle that Matthew's writing. And throughout the whole book, you know, there's, there's speculation and rumor about who Jesus is. Like all these people, the crowds are talking, the Pharisees are talking, the Romans are talking, like who is this man? And Matthew makes a point as he's trying to reveal that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah he makes a point to describe this of like all the speculation and all the rumor. And Jesus is addressed by many titles and names. So just, this is going to be like a, a lot of teaching, but follow along because there's a really good point at this in the end. So Matthew, Matthew describes like all the ways that Jesus is addressed by many titles and names. In Matthew 1, an angel appears to Joseph and says that um, Joseph will have a son and that they'll call him Emmanuel. Jesus is Emmanuel. The wise men address Jesus as the king of the Jews. In Matthew 3, Jesus is baptized, the heavens open, and the Father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So beautiful. 
And then Jesus is sent into the wilderness and the devil questions Jesus saying, if you are the son of God, well then turn these stones to bread. And he does that, the, the devil does that three times. If you are the son of God, he addresses Jesus knowing he's the son of God. And then throughout all of Matthew, the crowds are amazed and, at Jesus and it says that they were amazed at his teaching and authority. And, and he was quite unlike the teachers of the religious law. Just all this like talk and speculation about the authority and, and, and the amazing teaching that Jesus had. And many people approach Jesus for healing. Um, two examples would be the man with leprosy or, or the Roman officer. And they called him Lord. They called Jesus Lord. In Matthew 8, Jesus calms the storm for the first time and the disciples say, who is this man? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves will obey him? The demons interact with Jesus and again, they refer to him as the son of God. He's also called teacher. He's also called son of David. He's also called, he calls himself master of the household. Um, John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus and they ask, are you the Messiah that we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? And then John the Baptist is killed by Herod Antipas and Herod Antipas thinks that Jesus might be John the Baptist raised from the dead. And throughout all of Matthew, Jesus identifies himself, this title that Jesus gives himself is the son of man. And though Jesus, obviously he would have known that he is the son of God, he defers to identifying himself with humanity. And, and the son of man is a title of, hum, of, of humility and his identification with humanity. And it's, it, it just shows like Jesus' stunning um, example of what truly, what it is to, to what a human is meant to look like and to be. So like, do you get this kind of general overview picture of Matthew? Like all this talk, like who is Jesus? Is he the son of David? Like, is he, is he the Messiah? Is he just a good teacher? Um, all this talk, all this speculation and the spiritual realm, they know that he's the son of God. But the crowds, the people, the disciples, they're like, who is this man? They're trying to understand. They're trying to get to know who Jesus is. And that question still like, kind of rings true today in our world that like what like what is this Jesus thing who is Jesus and maybe we still ask that question I honestly sometimes I still do more in a pure and hard way these days maybe not before but these but it's like Jesus like who are you really like what are the things that I actually believe about you is this real is this true and then in Matthew right smack dab in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew, we see this incredible revelation that was given to the disciples. These were the ones, again, that walked with him daily, the ones that committed himself, that, that he committed himself to, the ones that he called friends, and the ones that devoted themselves to Jesus. And remember that, that Matthew is, is there, it's trying to say Jesus is the Messiah. And there's 28 chapters in Matthew, but right smack in the middle, Matthew 14, we find a familiar story of Jesus walking in water and right in the middle of Matthew, there's this incredible revelation that was given to the disciples. So let's read Matthew 14 together. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's the ghosts, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. And so come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. It's right in the middle of Matthew 
that in this situation, in this time, in this place, when there's all this talk about who Jesus is, that the disciples understand this revelation. Truly, you are the Son of God. I don't know if that's amazing to you, but that's pretty amazing to me. Like, yes, the heavenly realms knew. But like not even the people that received miracles from Jesus made that profession, understood that revelation. This revelation was reserved for those who walked daily with him, that followed the lamb wherever he goes. This is the moment the true identity of Jesus is made known to the disciples, right in the middle of the book of Matthew. There were so many that encountered Jesus and followed him around. There were crowds. Um, There were many who heard him speak, many who heard his teaching and marveled at his authority. People called him Lord or teacher. People received life-saving miracles, but not even they received the insight that Jesus is the Son of God. It was the disciples. Okay, I said I was going to give a lot of lessons, so this is going to be a grammar lesson. (laughs) And again, follow me because this is going somewhere. Okay, so verse 27 of Matthew. Jesus walks on the water and he says to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. It is I. In the original Greek text, it's translated as ego eimi, which can be directly translated as I am when Jesus says it is I. And Ryan spoke of this last week in Exodus 3, 13 to 14. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. It's like, it's a similar thing, right? Does it sound familiar? It is I, translated to ego eimi, which can also be just directly translated, I am which harkens back to Exodus 3. But like not every time the Bible says, you know, I am, is it talking about God? Like there's just normal sentences that you'll just say, like I am hungry or whatever it is, whatever it reads in the Bible. But what's unique about this is this is why it's a grammar lesson. Not every time the phrase I am is used in the Bible is referring to Yahweh, the name of God. But what's unique about Jesus' statement on the water is that it's not followed by a predicate nominative. He doesn't complete the sentence. He doesn't fill the other half of the sentence, which is exactly like Exodus 3. God gives his name and says, his name is I am. And in giving his name and asserting his deity, there's the, the grammatical term is predicate nominative. I am, but there's nothing that follows after in the original text. So God says, I am. Well, like, well, I, I am what? Like, like I am? Well, com- complete the sentence, please. Like, who are you? <laughs> he says, I am. So predicate nominative. Pre- nominative coming from the word nomen, which means name, or nomino, which means to call by name. And the predicate nominative is what follows a subject and a verb. So got some little teaching slides here. Samuel is a follower of Jesus. Samuel being the subject is being the verb. The predicate nominative is what follows. It identifies Samuel as a follower of Jesus. The next one. Ben is the subject. Was is a verb. Student is the predicate nominative. Describing Ben as a student. Nikki will be a mother. Subject, verb, predicate nominative. And we can also follow a subject and verb with a predicate adjective. So Ebony is, verb, intelligent, adjective describing ebony. Tiffany was kind, still is, but, you know. Tony will be resilient. Predicate nominative follows the subject and verb. So both a predicate nominative and a predicate adjective are used to rename and define and describe a subject. But when God says that his name is I am, it's not followed by a predicate nominative. It shows that he is like, he's self-defined. He is holy. He exists by his own self-definition. He is being and existence itself. He is divine. He's completely holy and set apart. And so in this same way, when Jesus says I am, 
the reason why it's not just a little whatever I am, it's like there's no predicate nominative followed by that, by his saying I am. He uses it in the same way that Yahweh does. And so in all of this, although we're saying that God is self-defined and, you know, quote-unquote, like, unknowable, I've said this already. He longs to be longed for. He longs to be known more than even we, we know that we want to know him. Like, he, he is going to make himself known to such an extreme degree that he came through Jesus himself to make himself knowable. He made himself vulnerable and available to us. So although he is self-defined, it doesn't mean that we cannot know him. It just means that the only way to know him is to go directly to him. We can't rely on the subject nominative. Like, we have to go straight to the source to know him. We can't know him by any other definition, either any other figment or shadow or, or rumor or someone else's story or experience of him. Like, cool, that's a great story. That inspires me. But to really know him, to know him, know him, you have to go straight to the source. To know and discover him, we have to go to the source itself. So this is why it's amazing when Jesus walks in the water and, and, he, and he says, I am. But the reality is the disciples were probably full of fear. They, they probably didn't even hear what Jesus said. <laughs> but yet, in verse 33, the disciples fall prostrate in the boat and worship and say, truly, this is the Son of God. And it's to these people at this point and in this setting that the Father reveals to them the divinity of Jesus Christ, that he is of the same nature of God. Okay. Is that all good? Did you receive something? That's a lot of information, even for me. God's calling us out that we would know him. Right? It was in this setting. Jesus knew where he was sending them, out onto the water, out onto the boat, it's in this setting that something so specific was revealed to the disciples, and only to the disciples, not to anyone else. And so where is God calling us out? I feel like that's the question for us. What areas of our lives, like even as I speak now, like I'll yield your heart to the Holy Spirit. Ask him to show you, to open your eyes. Where, what areas of lives are full of fear and doubt and uncertainty? Where are the stormy seas? What's the black abyss in your life that, like, when you think about that topic, you're like, I have no clue what that means or looks like or how to walk forward or where Jesus is in that. I want us in this moment to think of that place and locate Jesus and stare straight into that place in our lives. And just like that passage in Matthew, like, we, we stare at that abyss and see the figure of a man walking and approaching towards us. It's almost like it's a ghost. But we see his silhouette. He's on the water. Where is Jesus taking us beyond our limits? Like Ryan preached last time. Like what are the boxes? What are the, what are the things of God that are not truly him? What, what boxes is he breaking? What paradigms is he breaking? So that we can actually discover the real him. Not what we want him to be, but truly him. And it's in this place that the Father reveals something about Jesus that we never could have discovered otherwise. And when we see him, we won't do anything else but respond in worship and say, truly, this is the Son of God. Like, there were times in my life when I feel like all my paradigms of God was broken, the way that I related to him. And I wouldn't have said it at the time, but it was like approaching him as this genie in the bottle God. Like, if I do the right things, if I say the right things, pray the right things, then everything's going to work out exactly the way I want it, and God's going to bless me and give me the gift and whatever. And then that stopped working. And actually, in some ways, felt like God died. And if you were to ask me, I, I actually, like, in those times of prayer, seeking out God, like, I felt his spirit lead me to that place just for him to, like, seemingly disappear and to die. But God led me to that place so that a truer version of him could resurrect. Like that I could not know him based on what I wanted him to be or the paradigms. Like I got to know him truly as he was. And it developed within me like this reverence for him. Like, okay, God, like not my will, but yours. Like not who I want you to be, 
but who you truly are, even if it's, even if it means I don't get what I want, even if it means like I have to sacrifice things or there's loss, like I want you, I want to know you and I'm going to give up everything else. I love what Bill Johnson says, um, and he says this often, I believe, that there's a type of praise and there's a type of worship that we can only offer on this side of eternity. Um, Like, on this side of eternity, there still is waves. There still is pain and suffering and loss and all these things. And it's only in this side of eternity, in this place, that we can offer him praise and worship in the tension. We're not going to get to do that in heaven. Like, it's going to be so beautiful, and all our hopes and dreams will be fulfilled, and I'm so excited for that. But meanwhile, in the in-between, there's a certain type of worship that, like, we'll only get here and now. Whatever, like, pain point there is in your life, like whatever the Holy Spirit is highlighting in your life, like it's only now that you'll have the opportunity to worship him and to give him praise in this way. And so let's not waste this moment. Let's not waste a time of of pain. Let's not waste a doubt or uncertainty. Let's like stare right into it and and follow the Spirit forward and and, and say like, Jesus, would you call me out onto the waters? Would I see you for who you are? And I often wonder if, you know, there's, if there's minor chords in heaven. So are you ready for our next lesson? <laughs> Tiff, you want to actually go on the piano? Yeah. Little Tiff runs a music school, so she's very... Um, no, no, no. She has all the credentials for this lesson. I always, this is, you know, just a fun little metaphor, but I always wonder if there's minor chords... In heaven because minor chords feel like kind of sad you know like it's like you're grieving and you're like heavy <laughs> but major chords sound like happy right didn't you just feel a lift and like triumphant and wonderful and hopeful but it's only on this side of heaven that there's like tension oh this is fun <laughs> It's only on this side of heaven that there's tension. But if you mix the major and minor, then you get some movement. And you get some rise and fall. And you get some, like, interesting things happening. And there's, like, beauty in this. Right? That's a really good analogy. (laughs) And you did a very good job. (laughs) I was going to do it myself, but I think you did a better job. Like, there's something on this side of heaven that we can only offer now, and it's beautiful. It's actually so beautiful. And I actually really like minor chords, so maybe what we'll be teaching the creatures will be the minor chords. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, we're going to go to Revelation 15, and then we're going we're gonna to wrap up and, and pray. Revelations fif- Revelation 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven. Great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and they sing the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. Doesn't this remind you of Matthew 14? Of like standing on the waters. It says that they stood on the sea of glass. And the word stand in the Greek, it means just to stand, to, to place, to make firm, to fix, to establish, to set in place or in balance, to stand immovable like the foundation of a building, to be steadfast of mind. It's a quality of those who do not hesitate or waver. We stand on the waves, on the sea. And on this side of eternity, there's going to be waves. And we're, when we're called out, we might be like Peter and we might drown a little bit, but God's going to pick us up. But there will be a day when we stand on the sea of glass 
with the harps that God gives us. And if you've ever been to a lake in like a still morning or a quiet night and the water's still, like sound travels far on the sea of glass. And we will be standing. He's calling us to stand. Jesus says in Matthew 24, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Paul uses language a lot when he writes to the church of like standing, of perseverance. Things that we've, we've been taught on in weeks past, to, to persevere, to know Christ. And Revelation talks about those who persevere to the end will receive the crown of life. So God's inviting us to stand. And the worship team can come up. He's calling us to stand and to be committed as his disciples, to be fully devoted to his ways, no matter what. Come hell or high water, we're sticking with Jesus, even if it kills us, because there's a love that is stronger than death. He's calling us to stand, and like that's part of the expression of who we are as a church, who we are. The harpist will play the harp. The church will be the church. The disciples will follow Jesus, us as worshipers. There will be a sound of worship that comes from our lives. And it's not just for us, but it's for the generations after us. I'm going to read a poem. It's by Wendell Berry. It's called A Vision. He says, if we will have the wisdom to survive, to stand, like slow-growing trees on a ruined place, renewing, enriching it, if we will make our seasons welcome here, asking not too much of earth or heaven, then a long time after we are dead, the lives our lives prepared will live. Their houses strongly placed upon the valley sides, fields and gardens rich in the windows, the rivers will run clear, as we will never know it, and over it, bird song like cat canopy. On the levels of the hills will be green meadows, stock bells, and noon shade. On the steeps where greed and ignorance cut down the old forest, an old forest will stand. It's richly falling, drifting on its roots. The veins of forgotten springs will have opened. Families will be singing in the fields. In their voices, they will hear a music risen out of the ground. They will take nothing from the ground. They will not return, whatever the grief at parting. Memory native to this valley will spread over it like a grove, and a memory will grow into legend. Legend into song, song into sacrament. The abundance of this place, the songs of its people and its birds will be health and wisdom and indwelling light. This is no paradisal dream. Its hardship is its possibility. That if we were to stand like strong trees, immovable, and do what a tree does, stand and be firmly rooted, the kingdom of God comes when we're steady and devoted. And that's what he's inviting us into. But there are areas of life where it's hard to, to stand and to, to see what Jesus is doing. And so in this moment, that's where I feel like the Holy Spirit wants to minister. And simply for us to pray, like, open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you just show us again those places where Jesus is calling us to see him, where we can receive a unique revelation that we never could have otherwise. We want to know you more, Lord. We want to see you. Would you show us what's reserved only for us as your disciples? Would you lead us to greater commitment so that we would see you in greater ways? So just locate that place. And we're going to sing and we're going to pray. 
from that place. So if, if you've got that in your mind and in your heart, I invite you to stand. It's just like a prophetic act that as a church, we will stand. Even if it means building a cathedral that will never see the end of finishing, we're committed. Even if it means planting seeds for a forest, and we'll, we won't reap the full force, but we're going to plant the seed. We're going to commit to doing the work that Jesus calls us to do. And just pray, Holy Spirit, open my eyes. Reveal Jesus to me. Would I see Jesus, the figure of a man, standing on the waves?